Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, in the name of Jesus the Christ. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at a wrong teaching that developed within the church at Corinth about the aspect, is there a resurrection or not? Some were saying that there wasn't a physical resurrection, and Paul is going to write back to them that he had received a report about this bad teaching, and this is a very important subject and he's going to treat it in that way. Prior to this, we're dealing a lot of abuses in their actions and how they're treating each other, wrong understanding about the spiritual gifts, not uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper in the right way, some sin that was in the congregation that was never dealt with, that needed to be dealt with, all kinds of issues, lawsuits uh, that were going on where they were suing each other within the body of Christ. Uh, legally within secular courts. All these issues we have been dealing with leading up to this point, but this whole chapter is about wrong teaching, bad doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. And in our culture today, there's a phrase that really gets me upset when I hear the phrase that says, I'm not concerned about doctrine. The word doctrine and teaching is is the same understanding. So that person is saying, I'm not concerned about teaching. Well, teaching is extremely important. Our faith is built upon right teaching, godly teaching, understanding the word of God in the right way. So when a person says, I'm not concerned about doctrine, it's a wrong statement. They are saying, I'm not concerned about teaching, but God's word is all about teaching the truth. The only time that doctrine is used in a negative way is when they did not have sound doctrine, sound teaching. And there's an encouragement to come back to the Word of God, to rightly know God's Word, rightly divide the Word of truth, and make sure that what you believe is based upon the Word of God. So this is a very important subject. It should not be a chapter that anyone skips over quickly. It's fundamental to our faith. So we're going to start reading. Today I have my son Cole with me, and I have Alan that is here as well, that's done many podcasts with me. And I'm going to start by reading verses 1 and 2, and then Alan, if you don't mind reading uh, after that, after we discuss these verses, verses 3 through 11. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. The word if in this verse 2 is very important because the Corinthians had received the gospel. It was preached to them. They stand on the gospel. They are saved by the gospel if you hold fast the word which I preached unto you. 
that foundation that was given to them, that sound teaching, the truth of who Jesus was, and we're going to see that he died and he rose again physically on the third day. This was preached to them. They believed it. It's their salvation. They stand upon it, but they have to continue in that. They have to continue to hold, fa hold fast to these teachings that Paul and others brought to them. So the word if is very important here. And we're going to see in verse 12 that there are some that are teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead, that there is not a physical resurrection from the dead. This is the problem. And if you hold to that and you believe in that, then our whole faith is in vain. You have to have sound teaching when it comes to the day of the resurrection. It is a physical resurrection. So let's read verses 3 through 11, and then we'll go on from that, just making some comments about these verses. Chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. When we look at this passage in which Alan has read, we look at verses 3 and 4. That is the foundation of the gospel. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. We're going to see that when we go through the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 4. All of this is according to scriptures. And at this time, what is considered scriptures? The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Covenant, plus we're dealing with about 27 years after the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. So the apostles' teachings are part of the whole faith, and they knew of his life, his ministry, his parables. He, they knew of the Olivet Discourse, and that Olivet Discourse where he talks about the end times and his coming and the gathering to him. This is also part of scriptures, even though the new covenant scriptures have not been canonized or completed at this time. So foundationally, from the scriptures, he died for our sins. That's both old covenant, new covenant. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. We see the concept of the resurrection in the old covenant, and we understand from the new covenant, he was resurrected. And there were 500 witnesses to this. Peter was a witness. All the 12 apostles, 500 individuals. Jacob, James, the brother of the Lord, he was a witness to this. And Paul himself was a witness that Jesus is alive. Now, where did that take place? We see that in Acts chapter 9. As he was going to persecute the Jewish believers that believed in Jesus and that was spreading this message, he died, but he's alive, he's resurrected. He's going after them to put them into prison and to persecute them. And it's on the road to Damascus 
that a light came from heaven and blinded him, and he heard the voice, Why, Saul, are you persecuting me? Who are you? This is Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus reveals himself to Paul, and he sees the light and understands that he's alive. And by God's grace, Paul is saved on that day. And we see this understanding of the grace of God that came to Paul's life. He had a zeal and a passion for God, but not according to the truth. He was going after these individuals to persecute them that believed in Jesus and the resurrection. But by God's grace, he was saved. And so now he is a witness to that, like the other apostles as well. Let's move on from this point, because as we read verses 12 through 19, if this is not true, then all those individuals are liars. Cole, if you don't mind, if you could read verses 12 through 19. Starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Thank you, Cole. And when you look at this, this is just common sense when you look at what Paul is saying. If Christ did not have a physical resurrection, if Jesus did not rise from the grave physically, then everything that we preach is a lie. And those that are witnesses of this resurrection, they're lying. Our faith is in vain. If there's not a physical resurrection that will take place someday, Jesus was never resurrected. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Though you die, yet you shall live. And when we see Jesus coming out of the grave, we see that he's coming out not with a frail body, perishable body, but he's coming out of the grave with a glorified body. And we see that Thomas says, I will not believe until I see the physical evidence, until I touch your hands and touch your side. Then I will believe that you're resurrected. And when he touched, he said, my Lord and my God. So this physical resurrection is something that was testified by Job. Though my skin decays, yet in my flesh I will see God. Daniel is told at the end of his life, you will go to the grave, but you will understand all of these things about the last three and a half years at the day of the resurrection. So if there's not a resurrection, the old covenant, the Hebrew scriptures are a lie. Jesus in his words are a lie. And these witnesses to his resurrection, they have lied. And so therefore, our whole faith would be in vain. If someone feels that there's not a physical resurrection that is too hard to believe, 
then what are you living for? What is your faith all about? What is the power of God? God raised him from the grave on the third day. When he came out of the grave, he had the keys to death, Hades, and the grave. And all authority is in his hands. So it's not acceptable at all that you're a believer, but you don't believe in a physical resurrection. Now, I've met believers that do not believe it. They have faith in Christ, but they say, but it's too hard for me to believe that there's going to be a day of resurrection. Well, your faith is in vain. It is important what we believe. And one of the fundamental truths of our faith is that Jesus rose from the grave. He's alive. It was a physical resurrection. He's the resurrection and the life. And though we die, yet we shall live. And at the trumpet sound, the dead in Christ will rise first. That is a physical resurrection that he says to the believers at Thessalonica. He's going to be saying the same thing to the believers at Corinth as well. I think there's an additional aspect to the physical resurrection. Just looking back at Genesis and the fall of man, I think it's so powerful when we think about that God has not given up on this creation, this original creation that he created out of the dust of the ground, even though we have sinned and fallen away from God and we see our bodies decaying because of sin. Now God is saying that even this flesh, which has been destroyed by sin, God is going to recreate it. He's not going to just take our souls and we're not just going to leave our body, but he's actually going to recreate us from the original flesh. And I think it's just powerful that God can do a work even with this flesh that has been destroyed by sin. That's a great point, Cole, bringing it back to Adam. So you think of a miraculous thing of God creating Adam out of dust. You know, how? why can't he resurrect and recreate our bodies out of our bones and out of, out of what's left over? I mean, it's not a stretch. If you, if you think, if you believe that he, he created Adam out of dust, you know, resurrection is a little bit easier in my mind to sort of process. Yes. And if, if you're struggling with that, then you probably are struggling with the whole Bible, the whole Bible. <laughs> yeah, as a whole. So, yeah, it's just interesting that it seems like the church at Corinth, you know, was getting some false teaching and some people were struggling with this, as were the Sadducees during Jesus's preaching. They struggled with that. They didn't believe it, even though the Old Covenant scriptures point to that. Yes. And I do believe that there's an element of Gnosticism in the Corinthian church from this standpoint. It's a very Hellenistic city. People are getting saved. They're coming out of a Gnostic background, which saturated Hellenism. And the Gnostic said, the flesh is evil. There's nothing good in the flesh and the spirit is good. And so they probably had an issue of a physical resurrection. Why would there be a physical resurrection? Because the flesh is evil. It's corrupted. But later on, Paul's going to talk about we're going to partake of a heavenly body. It's not going to be the same body that we had before. And he does make a comparison between Adam and the Messiah. From Adam came a death and destruction, but from the second Adam, the second man, there is going to become a spiritual body and life and salvation and all of these things. He's also going to write to the believers at Rome this same concept in Romans chapter 5. And so I want us to keep on reading here. But for everyone to understand, if you do not believe in a physical resurrection, your whole faith is in vain. 
then Jesus was not resurrected. You don't believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, therefore your whole faith is in vain and you need to just go on and do something else because you need to continue in the right teaching that was handed down to you. Yeah, and just to add to your point about Hellenistic influence, you know, we even see in the Gospels the Sadducees not believing in a physical resurrection. So Paul is, or the church in Corinth, Paul, that, who Paul is addressing, not only are they having maybe the Hellenistic influence, but even from a, a Judeo influence could also have had a negative view of the body. Yes, and I like what you brought up there because the Sadducees who controlled the temple did not believe in a physical resurrection. And they were very much influenced by Greek thought as well. They were very hedonistic. And it was all about money and it was all about today. They were very corrupt. If you do not believe in a physical resurrection, you're just going to live for today. And if it's only about today, what is it all about? Because your life is but a vapor, Jacob says. It's here today, gone tomorrow. So a person that doesn't believe in the physical resurrection, they're just living for today. And from a Judaic standpoint, from the Sadducees, who only believed in the first five books of the Bible as the Word of God, they didn't believe in a physical resurrection. And they were very corrupt, very hedonistic, and they were very money-minded. It was all about today's pleasures. Jesus goes to them and has a dialogue with them and says from the law, the first five books, God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And what he is saying to them in the portion of the Bible that they believe is scriptures, that after these men have died and have been gone for a long time, God is still saying, I'm the God of Abraham. Why would he say he's the God of Abraham if Abraham's gone for eternity? But no, he's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. He's not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And I do believe the Sadducees were influenced by Hellenism as well. They were influenced in their philosophies, the way that they approached life, their language, was Greek. They were trained in the Greek language. They would have been very familiar with the teachings of Alexandria, Egypt, and a lot of the uh, Hellenistic, Gnostic teachings or philosophies that were coming from there. And so they were highly educated in these philosophies. So you probably have a combination that is coming together. But in Corinth, there were some Jews that got saved, but the vast majority of them are Gentile background believers. And they're coming from a Gnostic worldview. Not full-blown Gnosticism, but all the foundation was there. And one of the things that Gnosticism said is the flesh is evil, the flesh is bad, there's not anything good in the flesh, only the spirit is good, and this flesh will be done away with. Probably some of that background is leading some of them to teach the believers in Corinth, there is no physical resurrection. And if you believe that, then your faith is in vain. Let's continue. And Alan, if you don't mind reading verses 20 through 28 here. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. 
For since by a man come death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. When we look at this, Christ, the Messiah, is the first fruits of those who have died. There is only one individual that has been resurrected. Some people look at Lazarus and say, well, Lazarus was resurrected. Lazarus was resuscitated from the dead only to go back to the grave again. Resurrection means that you come out of the grave never to die again. Lazarus did not have a glorified body. So therefore, there's only one person that has ever been resurrected. There's only one individual that can be called the resurrection and the life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of those who have died. So if he was not resurrected, then we will never be resurrected. But because he's alive, I shall live. My faith is in him, not just in his death, but also in his resurrection. Then he goes on to talk about, for as in Adam all die, so also in the Messiah all will be made alive. Future tense. So that is an understanding. We are alive, we have been saved, but we're going to the grave, but there's a day of resurrection. Also in verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. So the resurrection will take place when? At, at his coming. At his coming. This is something that we've emphasized, that Jesus talked about, that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But now he's also saying the resurrection will take place at his coming. That is consistent throughout Scripture. Then comes the end. When? At his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And that's Revelation chapter 20, when we see death and Hades that is thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed forever. Verse 27 for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is excluded or accepted who put all things in subjection to him. God the Father is not put under his feet. Look at verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So the Son, the power of God is given to the Son that everything is subjected to him, everything is under his feet, and the Son will present everything back 
to the Father. It brings in to me Psalm chapter 2, also in the letter to the Philippians, that every knee shall bow. Well, let me go back to Psalm chapter 2, is that God has established his Messiah, and his Messiah is declared the Son of God, and the nations are given to him as an inheritance. Please, please understand, the nations are not given to us as an inheritance. They are given to the Son of God, the Messiah. And you better kiss the Son, lest he be angry at you. There is this understanding that everything will come in subjection to the Son of God. It also brings out Daniel chapter 7, that the kingdom is given to the King, the Son of Man, and everything is in subjection to him. All nations, all people from every background, every tongue will come to serve him, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his kingdom can never be destroyed. Everything is in subjection to him. And into the letter to the Philippians, Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So everything is coming under his authority, and then the Son will present that to the Father. This is the picture that we receive through a resurrected Lord. I think in verse 28, when it talks about then the Son being subject to the Father, I think it can be somewhat confusing when you see this subjugation of the Son of the Father and you might wonder, is there a different quality of their deity or, you know, ontologically, is, is, is the Father a higher deity than the Son? And you certainly see that in many of the Trinitarian heresies. I think it's powerful when you see it in role of their function and how even though there is complete and total equal superiority within the Trinity, that even in the Son's superiority, he chooses to subjugate himself and function to the Father. It's quite powerful, but I, I can see how it, it could be confusing when you see that the Son seems to be under the Father. Yes, and the Father and the Son are one. And in their role and their function, you see different function, but equal in every aspect of who they are. The Son is the exact representation of the Father. In the Son, he is the image of the invisible God. So how do we know the Father? Through the Son. How do we know God's salvation? Through the Son. How, would, how do we know his eternal salvation, his righteousness, his holiness, his character? Every aspect, his judgment, even his judgment will come under the Son. That through the Son, God has caused everything, the Father, to be subjected under his feet, and he presents it back to the Father. They are one in who they are, in complete unity, even though their function is different. Think about no one knows the day or the hour, but you should recognize the season. No one knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son knows about his coming, but the Father alone. Think about that. The Son has emptied himself of these qualities of knowing even the return of his own coming back is completely in the hands of the Father. And at his coming, all authorities are going to be subjected under his feet. God, the Father, is not subjected under his feet, but it's the Father who is saying to the Son, 
It's time to go get your bride. It's time to bring judgment. It's time to bring submission of the nations under your feet. Go get your bride. When we see this, we understand the function, the role is different, but in complete unity. And that's part of what Paul says to the church at Philippi about the emptying of himself. But he was obedient to the point of death, death upon a cross. And now God has bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at his name every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Complete unity in who God is as Father, Son, and of Spirit. So I'm glad you brought that out, and you see these qualities here in the resurrection of what Paul is saying. This has kind of jumped out at me as we read, especially 20 through 28. You know, Paul, throughout this entire letter, even the chapters before, he's sort of correcting the Corinthians, you know, and he's kind of setting some things straight. But what can get lost in it and what has got lost in it some for me until seeing this again is this, you know, 20 through 28, he's painting this beautiful picture of what the resurrection is for us, for the believers, for the people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, Christ has been resurrected, this heavenly body, and when the day of the Lord is coming, we're going to have that same body. We're going to be, you know, we're already created in the image of God, but we're going to be created even more to the image of God and to the image of what Jesus is now. And it's just a beautiful thing that you can see Paul telling them, even though it's in a correction. It's like if you just, if you sit there and think about it, you know, he's laying out, this is what your your hope is as a believer, where the verse 19, where he says, you know, we're to be pitied um, if we don't have this hope, if we don't see this. We're, what are we doing? It just, you know, doesn't make sense. We're, we're walking around very foolish. But our hope is just an amazing, incredible thing that we are going to be resurrected with the Messiah, with God the Father, ruling and reigning with Him for eternity. And it just, kind of, yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing yes. that, you know, when you, when you try to think about it, you can't really fathom it. I don't think we'll fully understand until that day, but it's just, it's so, so awesome to think. And this is what, you know, and Paul's like, what are you doing saying there's no resurrection? It's the whole thing that's based on in your faith and salvation is this resurrection. And why would you want to take away this hope of this incredible thing that God is going to do for you and has done through you? Yes, yeah, so you son. get the picture of victory here. You get the picture of who we are in him and how secure we are in him. And eternity is through him. The victory is that everything is under his feet. Death and Hades is under his feet. It's subjected to the Son of God. Therefore, if our faith is in him and if he's alive, we will live. And though you die, you will live. But for those that die, we don't die like those who have no hope. We don't mourn, I should say. We don't mourn like those who have no hope. We have hope. What is the hope? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, fundamental to our faith. Now let's continue here. Verse 29 is going to be a hard verse here, but we're going to look at it. We're not going to skip over it. (laughs) Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, Why then are they baptized for them? In fact, there was probably a practice going on in Corinth that Paul probably never taught them. That's an assumption because we don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. But remember, they're questioning the resurrection of the dead. 
If there's no resurrection of the dead, why then are they baptized for them? Why are you practicing this? There are some that might have believed and died before a physical baptism took place, and some of them are saying, I'm going to stand in their place, and I'm going to be baptized for them. That's how important their mindset of what a baptism was. Why then are they baptized for them? Why are you even going through this? Why do you even practice this if there is no resurrection of the dead? And again, we always say, don't build a theology on one verse. We don't see anyone in the book of Acts 35 years being uh, baptized for those that have died. But something has created an understanding that we can even be baptized for those that have died. And some of them have done this. Well, if you're doing this, why don't you believe in a resurrection then? So it's a statement that he's received a report that he's writing back to them. You even do this. Why are you even doing this if you don't believe in a resurrection? That's what we know for sure. It's not an upholding of the practice. We never see this practice in the book of Acts. We never see it taught anywhere else within scripture. But this evidently was taking place within Corinth. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you even doing this? I'm trying to think of an analogy to wrap my head, but it's almost like an atheist, you know, a great moment of danger and he starts to pray. And it's like, why are you even praying? You know, you don't yes. even believe in God. What, it's what a great you, analogy. What are you doing? Yes. And that's kind of what, what that makes sense, Paul saying to them. Yeah, you're not creating a doctrine. You are saying, well, why are you doing this if you don't even believe in the resurrection? Yeah. And I believe this is what is coming out with Paul's teaching to them. He is not instructing them to do that, but evidently is taking place with some of the believers in Corinth. Well, if you're doing this and you don't even believe in the resurrection, why are you doing this? Now let's continue. Verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. They're going through persecution. Paul is writing from Ephesus. They are in Corinth. Paul is going through persecution all the time. Is it all in vain? No, he has to die daily to his will, his desires, his ambitions in life. There's a daily dying to himself that takes place. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? if the dead are not raised. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He quotes from Isaiah here. What is he talking about? If Why am I going through this? I die daily, the pressures, and I even have had to face the beast at Ephesus. He was in Ephesus for two years and three months. And so why am I doing this if there's not a day of resurrection? It'd be better to go out and drink and party and just be hedonistic in your life because it's all in vain. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And when we look at this, it's in the context of those that don't have sound teaching. Bad company corrupts good morals. If we do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, then why not go out and just party and do whatever you want? And if that's the case, Bad company corrupts good morals. This might be a side thought, but just curious. In 32, when he talks about fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus, is there any evidence from Acts that, that Paul had done so, or do you think that could be interpreted as maybe false teachers? 
not so much from Acts, but from his second letter he's going to write about how he had to fight against wild beasts. So when we get into his second letter, because what he writes in this letter is not all going to be accepted. In fact, there are some that are going to come against him very strongly, and they're going to attack him, attack his integrity, his uh, apostleship, everything. His walk with the Lord, his authority as an apostle is going to come under attack. And he writes in them about the lashes he has received and the fighting of the wild animals, the beasts that he goes through. I know some of them, some people look at this in Ephesus and says, well, it's not literal. But no, he did fight against the wild beast. And he mentions it in the context of a literal thing that he went through. Otherwise, you would have to interpret, well, the lashes that he received at Philippi, oh, it was just figuratively that he was going through. Or when he was in prison at Philippi, ah, he was just figuratively in prison. No, he didn't really wasn't in prison. No, he actually went through these experiences within his life. Now, when you go to seminary, they try to do that sometimes said, well, not, we don't see that recorded in Acts or in Ephesus. So he probably didn't fight there in Ephesus, but he did come against opposition and there were consequences for his faith. So if there is not a physical resurrection, why am I going through this? It's all in vain. And this is what I believe is taking place. Now, if there's not a physical resurrection, let's just go out and party and bad company corrupts good morals. This is how I would see it, Cole. Verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This again is something that I believe that Gnosticism is having an effect on some of the believers within the church there. Because if there's not a resurrection and the flesh is evil and it's only going to be your spirit and your soul someday, so as long as you have a knowledge of Christ, a Christ consciousness, it doesn't matter what you go out and do in the flesh. It's all in vain anyway, your fleshly body. And if that's the case, good company, bad company corrupts good morals, just go out and live any way that you want to. That was a form of Gnosticism. And this is one of the first places do I believe that you're seeing Gnosticism rear its ugly head here. And so he says, stop sinning. Stop this lifestyle. Quit believing these things. What you believe affects how you live your life. For some have no knowledge of God. Those that are teaching this have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh are not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. 
There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the star differs from star in glory. Now listen to all of that. It's going to be explained here. It's very simple. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. When we receive our resurrected bodies, it's going to be a different body, a heavenly body. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Is there a natural body? There is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we also bear the image of the heavenly. So what is being said here, yes, these physical bodies will decay. Just like Job says, though my skin decays in my flesh, I will see God. There is a heavenly body, a spiritual body, a physical body that is spiritual, that is from God that we will embrace one day. And it will not perish. It will be perfect. It is an eternal body and it will come from God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came out of the grave, he had this body. He is the first fruits. He is the resurrection and the life, never to go back to the grave again. It is a perfect body. It is something that will never decay. This is our future if we believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's finish this out. Uh, Alan, if you could read verses 50 through 58. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must be must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That verse 58 is important because the belief in the resurrection of the dead is the motivation many times of how we live our lives. Now, we go back to verse 50. We understand that this body will be imperishable. Look at 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Not everyone will die before his coming. 
but we will all be changed. What that is saying to me is that we know the dead in Christ rise first and those who are alive go next, but even those that are alive will receive this imperishable body. They will be changed, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So whether we have died or alive, when we go to meet the Lord in the air, we will be changed. There will be an imperishable body that we embrace, that God gives to us. Both those who are alive, those who have died, we will be changed and we will have this imperishable body. Now, when you go down to verses 54 and 55, he's quoting from Hosea and Isaiah, and he's quoting about death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So the prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah, they spoke about a day that was coming, that death did not have victory over the people of God. Then we see in verse 56, the sting of death is sin. Sin brings about death, and the power of sin is the law. Law makes sin very, very clear and and shows us what sin is. And in fact, the law is holy and the law is good. Before I knew not to covet, I was free from that. But once I was taught the law not to covet, I found myself coveting everything. You're going to see glimpses here of the foundation of what he's going to say in Romans chapter 7. Verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to say the same thing in Romans chapter 7, two years later, when he brings these principles in such an incredible way in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Therefore, because Jesus is alive, there's a day of resurrection for us. We're not just living for today. It's not about hedonism. There's an eternity at stake by what we believe. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work, your toil, is not in vain in the Lord. Everything that we're doing right now is for God's glory. It's not in vain. It's not about today. There's a day of resurrection that's coming where the dead in Christ are going to rise first. There's going to be that trumpet sound, and they're going to rise, and those who remain that are alive are going to go next. We're going to meet him in the air. It's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. The bridegroom is coming for his bride, and these perishable bodies will be changed to imperishable bodies, heavenly bodies, spiritual bodies, and they will be everlasting bodies. They will never suffer decay like the first body because of sin that brought forth death. But these bodies will have life for eternity, and we will be with the Lord, always be with the Lord. And do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Yes. And if you don't, your faith is in vain. So going back to verse 2 of chapter 15, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. It is important, your thought processes. It is important that you believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, a physical resurrection, then your whole faith is in vain. Believe, and as you have the true understanding, that should be a motivation of how you live your life. Live it for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for what Paul is saying to the believers at Corinth. Let that same message be alive within our hearts. Let us have sound teaching, sound doctrine. Let us live according to your word. And thank you that our life is in your hands. Thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And though he lives, thank you that he's the resurrection and the life. And because he lives, we will live. Thank you for that truth. We believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.